Um, <clears throat> you're not supposed to do that. But uh, I encourage you, if you have a Bible with you, it'll also be up on the screen. Um, the uh, second chapter of John, verses 12 through 25. Hear God's word. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the things, the signs that he was doing. But Jesus um, entrusted himself, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. Pray with me. God, may your word um, open to us. And may we understand, not just with our heads, but with our hearts and with our wills, what you communicate this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We could assume that Jesus had been to the temple before this instance in his life. I mean, Jesus was a good Jewish boy, raised in a good Jewish family, and they would have made pilgrimages up to Jerusalem. And when we say up to Jerusalem, it's that Jerusalem had an elevation. It sat up on a hill. So from whatever direction you came from, you were going up to Jerusalem. Uh, One of my favorite depictions of What it might have been like for Jesus' first encounter in the temple is from Anne Rice. You'll know Anne Rice's work mostly from all of her vampire books. But um, she did write a couple of uh, different works. Uh, She wrote one called Christ the Lord Out of Egypt, a novel, um, The Life of Christ, book one. And then there was one called um, Back to Canaan or back to Cana, and um, in it, she describes in this book, um, Out of Egypt, describes an encounter Jesus has at the temple. He and his uncles, his whole family, was headed up to Jerusalem for Passover, and they were going to make an offering. His brother, his older brother James was with them, and James had a particular offering he wanted to make. Um, I, I shouldn't ruin the book for you, and it wouldn't ruin it to say that James felt guilty about the way he felt about his brother. He had sibling rivalry. And this is how Anne Rice um, 
portrays this in the book. By the way, uh, this is a historical novel. She does great research. She used people like N.T. Wright and others as, as consultants for this uh, book. And um, we pick it up, and they're getting ready to go in. And it's not unlike the scene we've just read, but listen to it. Before we could purchase the birds, which um, were all selected as perfect for the Lord, we had to change our money for the proper shekels received by the temple. And above the busy tables of the money changers under the colonnade, I could see the burnt roof in either direction. Uh, the temple had burned some years before, and in her book, Jesus had seen that as a really young boy. Now he's about 10, maybe 11. <clears throat> I could see the burnt roof in either direction, and the men working on it, sweating under the sun as they scraped and cleaned the stones that were left, and some fitting in new stones with mortar. I knew that job well. He had done that for his uncle. But never had I seen such a great building, and I couldn't see the end of the colonnade to the right or to the left of me. The capitals of the columns were beautiful, and a great deal of the gold had been, uh, the gold had been restored. Voices grew angry in front of me. Men and women were disputing with the money changers. Cleopas was impatient. That's his uncle. What is the point of their arguing, he said in Greek to me. Listen to them. Don't they know these people are robbers? He used the same word in Greek that we all use for the robbers who lived in the hills, the rebels who'd come down and taken Sephorus and brought the Romans out after them. In our first visit, bloodshed, and now as we came up to the tables ourselves, it was a din of voices. Well, if you want to buy two birds, then you change to this, a man said to a woman who stood over him, who seemed not to understand his Greek. She asked a question in Aramaic that was different from ours, but I could follow what she said. When Joseph offered to give her the right coin she needed, she put up her hand and would have none of it. Joseph and Cleopas and all the men changed their coins without any words. But then Cleopas drew back and said, You pack of thieves, are you proud of yourselves? The money changers waved him away without much of a look. And Joseph pressed him to stop. Not in the house of the Lord, said Joseph. And why not, Cleopas said. The Lord knows they're thieves. They charge too much for the exchange. Leave it, said Uncle Alpheus. There hasn't been a riot yet today. Do you want to start a riot? But why do they charge too much, Father, James asked. I don't know that they do. I accept it, Joseph said. We've come with money enough for the sacrifice. Nothing's been taken from me that I haven't been prepared to give. We were already in the place where the turtle doves were kept. The sun was hot and the stones were hard under my feet. Though they were beautiful stones, I could hear more anger and more disputing, along with the cluck and coo of the birds themselves. It was a long time before we reached the tables. The stench of the cages was worse than any courtyard in Nazareth. The filth dripped from the cages. Here, even Joseph was surprised by the price that he had to pay. But the merchant was cross and pointed out how many people were waiting. Would you care to sit here and deal with these people, the merchant demanded, or bring your own perfect birds from Galilee? That's where you're from, isn't it? I can tell by your speech. 
Everywhere I heard the same quarreling. A family had returned with birds that the priest wouldn't accept. The merchant shouted in Greek that the birds had been unblemished when he sold them. Again, Joseph offered to pay for another sacrifice, but the father said no, this time with thanks to him. The woman was crying. I've walked for 14 days to get here to make this sacrifice. Listen, you have to let us pay for another pair of doves for you, said Cleopas. I don't give the money to you, he said to the woman. I give it to this fellow here, and then he gives you two more birds. That way it's your sacrifice still, you understand? You don't take anything from me for it. He takes it. The woman stopped crying. She looked at her husband, and her husband nodded. Cleopas paid the money. The merchant gave the women two fluttering little birds. Quickly, he shoved the others into an empty cage. You miserable thief, said Cleopas under his breath. The merchant nodded, yes, yeah, yeah. James made his purchase quickly. And thoughts came into my mind that frightened me. Not memories of the battle that I had seen before, the man who died here that I had seen before, but other thoughts that this was not a place of prayer, that it was not the beautiful place of Yahweh to which all would come to worship him. It seemed so simple, the laws of sacrifice, when we recited them in the scripture, but here it was a huge marketplace full of noise and anger and disappointment. There were Gentiles all around us in this great ever-moving crowd, and I blushed secretly for what they saw and heard. <clears throat> he goes on to describe the majesty of being in the temple with the singers and the colonnades on the, on the walkways above and all of them singing these remarkable, um, beautiful, dark, deep chants. And um, that, and he, he describes the smells of the offering. You'll, you just have to read it. It's the best description of the temple and what it meant for Jesus to interrupt this of anything I've read. <clears throat> I blushed secretly, said, for what the Gentiles saw and heard. This is the stage that's set for his return that we encounter in John. Jesus is not merely protesting the abuse in the temple. So what is he doing? Jesus is declaring judgment on the whole apparatus of religion. Because people can't see who God is through the clutter. Isn't that what she's describing as when Jesus blushes secretly for what the Gentiles are seeing? They can't see God through the clutter. The Jews asked Jesus for a sign that would give him credibility for disrupting their work. They wanted something extra to prove. But Jesus doesn't give them one. We're not unlike that, are we? Jesus comes to upset the apparatus of religion. Those things that we do perpetually in a way that have become um, such a part of our life together that we are people who um, uh, just keep doing that and we can't see that it no longer is a lens into the God we proclaim. And then we want a sign. God gives us a sign that if you disrupt all this, then make sure that, that we're not doing it without, um, without some sense that you're in it. The place where God shows up among the people has forever changed. 
Because God shows up for the people in Jesus. That's what we know. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The temple changes, but that's not where God shows up. God shows up among the people of the world as we celebrated a few nights ago on Christmas Eve, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God tabernacles with us in Jesus. God makes his way with us in Jesus. And people cannot see the sign through their religious activity. So the question comes to us, what's church? What is it really about? We know, we know the answers. I mean, I, 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 um, some years ago, I mean, I, I went around the country and I would work with people. And we'd ask the question, so what's church? And after the uh, initial part, everybody would say, well, well, what is the church like? And, you know, pretty soon it was just this thing with the steeple and open the doors and, and there aren't any people. Uh, but that's sort of the way it was. It was like this way they would describe buildings. And then I'd keep going with people and keep pressing it. And they remember their Sunday school lessons and their Bible studies. They eventually say that the church is the body of Christ. It's not a place. But everybody began with a place. But we know the church is God's people, not religious apparatus. We don't need this sanctuary. We don't need any of the trappings that we've created to be God's people. The disruption of the temple as usual is a sign of the end of religion. Religion is the effective means to try to get to God. And Jesus is going to disrupt it as a precursor to the temple being destroyed itself. Tear it all down and something new will happen. God is among us in the world. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The disciples don't understand and believe until after Jesus' death. And then they remember what he said. After his death and resurrection, they begin to look back on the things he said, and they look back at the scripture, and they see Jesus in all of it, but not till later. <clears throat> Leslie Newbegin writes this. He says, it took a long time for the disciples to understand that the apparatus of Jew- Jewish religion, temple, Sabbath, circumcision, law, have been done away in Christ, It was not without struggle and conflict that understanding was reached. And the struggle goes on while the church pursues its mission through all generations of all peoples. For we do not fully understand Jesus until the day when his work shall be complete. All nations shall worship him. Every tongue will confess him Lord. Until that day, The church can never absolve itself of the task of re-examining old ways, old patterns of understanding in the light of new experience. In the light of the new experience of the work of the Spirit in bringing new peoples and new generations to confess on their own and in their own tongues that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
people need to come to the place, people that have never been able to do that, and the apparatus changes and, and the message doesn't, but we have to keep working and examining so people can't, in their own place, in their own people groups all over the world, can come and address Jesus as Lord to the glory of God. This last week, I was uh, given a section of, of a, of a uh, devotional that Richard Rohr is quoted in. And uh, Richard Rohr is a, um, uh, a priest and a spiritual director and leader and, and author, and many of you are familiar with his work. And, um, and he writes this. Um, he says that, On the last day of the year, I generally withdraw to pray. A few years ago, I asked myself, what should I pray for this year? What do we need in these turbulent times? Naturally, I went strongly tempted to pray for more love. But it occurred to me that I've met so many people in the world who are already full of love and who really care for others. Maybe what we lack isn't love, but wisdom. It became clear to me that I should pray above all else for wisdom. We all want to love, but as a rule, we don't know how to love rightly. How should we love so that, the life, so that life will really come from love itself? I believe that we all need wisdom. I'm very disappointed that we in the church have passed on so little wisdom. Often the only thing we've taught people is to think that they're right or that they're wrong. We've either mandated things or, or forbidden them. But we haven't helped people to enter upon the narrow and dangerous path of true wisdom. On wisdom's path, we take the risk of making mistakes. On this path, we take the risk of being wrong. That's how wisdom is granted and gained. It looks as if we will always live in a world that is a mixture of good and evil. Jesus called it a field in which wheat and weeds grow alongside each other. We say, Lord, shouldn't we go out and rip out the weeds? But Jesus says, no. If you try to do that, you'll probably rip up the wheat out along with the weeds. Let both grow up alongside each other in the field till harvest. Look at Matthew 13, 24 through 30. We need a lot of patience and humility to live with a field of both weeds and wheat in our own souls. Jesus came to teach us the way of wisdom. He brought us a message that offers to liberate us from both the lies of the world and the lies lodged in ourselves. The words of the gospel created alternate consciousness solid ground on which we can really stand, free from every social order and free from every ideology. That's what Jesus was doing by disrupting the apparatus of religion. Rohr goes on and says, Jesus called this new foundation the reign of God, and he said it is something that takes place in the world and yet will never be completed in this world. This is where faith comes in. It is so rare to find ourselves trusting not in the systems and isms of this world, but standing at a place where we offer our bit of salt, leaven, and light. It seems so harmless, and even then, 
We have no security that we're really right. This means that we have to stand in an inconspicuous, mysterious place, a place where we're not sure that we're sure, where we are all comfortable knowing that we do not know very much at all. The apparatus must change so the heart of our mission can be seen clearly.